This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. There's another dimension of what you raised, and I want to come back to in a second as well, and that is the whole issue of identity. There's a form of it's not nationalism, but it's like nationalism. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, uh, where if you attack my faith, you you have you have you've attacked me. You've attacked me. It's 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 personal and it's deeply personal. And right. so some of the offense that is felt that we tend not to it tends not to register in the West because we don't attach ourselves, most people don't, to religion in that kind of a way, right. we have trouble understanding that kind of a reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there is there is definitely a tension between the, the secular Muslims and the devout Muslims, and there's even tension between the devout Muslims themselves, mm-hmm. because, you know, one of the things, and, and it's, it's the same thing, you know, throughout history, if you look at even Christianity and history, there's there is tension between, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants, and then there's tension between, um, even you know, th- there's tension between, you know, people who are that go to Bible churches and people that that are Baptists, right? And so you see that even in the Middle East, it does exist in the Middle East, and you know, one of the things that I think that binds Christians together is the issue of love mm-hmm. and loving one another. And that does not exist in Islam. Mm-hmm. There's the brotherly love that exists, but brotherly love is not the same as unconditional love. Uh, you know, last night I was reading First John and I had to teach that in my Sunday school class. And, and I thought, one of the marks of salvation is loving your brother. Mm-hmm regardless of what they do and how they act. But with Islam, there's a whole lot of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth mentality. And so there isn't that unconditional love. And so there isn't that unity. And there is that tension, that constant tension between the sects and between the devout versus the secular. There's a lot of tension that goes on. Okay. And you've raised a couple of things, and and I want to make sure I come back to one of them. But I want to pursue uh, one direction more in this in thinking about the distinctions within Arab culture. We've talked about the secular and the devout. But even among the devout, you mentioned there are different sects within Islam. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that uh, about that dimension? What are their names? What do they represent? That kind of thing. Sure. You know, obviously the major ones are the Sunnis. And if I can uh, compare Sunnis to to any other uh, to f- a form of Christianity, I would say that they are the evangel the ev- the evangelicals because they follow the word of God. You know, evangelicals follow the word of God and they try not to stray out of that. And so I would say Sunnis do that. Shiites, I would compare them to Catholics because they add a different dimension and culture and tradition into their faith. So that's who the Shiites are. And then there's a whole lot of other. Uh, smaller sects like the um, um, the the Sufis, the Malachites, the you know, the, there's just a, a smaller you know versions of these different sects. Now, if we think about this in terms of countries, do certain sects dominate 
certain countries? Absolutely. So how does that, how does, roughly, how does that work out? Well, the majority of Muslims, if you were to look at the major, the Muslims as a whole, I would say about 80% of them would be Sunnis. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these um, Arab countries are dominated by, by the Sunni mm-hmm. faith. Then you have a stricter sect of Sunnis, like the Wahhabis, that live in Saudi Arabia. Okay. And so you have that in Saudi Arabia, but the majority are Sunnis. If you go to Iraq, the, the huge tension in Iraq is that there's a lot of Sunnis and a lot of Shiites, and they're the ones who are fighting against each other. You go to Iran, they're mostly Shiites. So it just really depends on you know what country you go to. And so so the, the particular type of Islam that you are related to then impacts the character of what Islam looks like in that country. Sure. And all right, well, uh, that, that's interesting. I've got I've got two more topics I want to be sure and cover, but I want to come to one that's very, very important in understanding Islam, and that is let's talk about the role of we have we have another um, podcast that we've done where where Dudley Woodbury takes us through uh, Islam, and he talks about the role of submission and that kind of thing. So I think we have that covered in the other podcast. But the thing I want to zero in on here is to talk about I'm going to talk I'm going to ask a difficult question in some ways. The role of honesty in Islam. Now here here's what I'm raising is there's a sense that we have in the West that within Islam there in terms of the defense of Islam as a faith, sure. there's a kind of ends justifies the means. And so there's the ability to to what we would say lie, deceive, etc. that's acceptable. That's not only acceptable, it's almost honorable. Can I have you talk about that? Can, can I mention a passage in the Old Testament where, where lying was blessed okay. by God? Yeah. Um, the midwives, you know, were uh, commanded by Pharaoh mm-hmm. to kill the children, the Hebrew children. Right. And um, they wouldn't do that. And so Pharaoh brought them in and said, why haven't you done that? And they said, well, you know, these Hebrew women, they're just very rigorous. Mm-hmm. We, they have these kids and we don't even have time to go. And, and it says in the Old Testament that God blessed them. Mm-hmm. God blessed them. So we have an example of that in the Old Testament where lying was not only honorable, but it was even blessed by God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's hard to... You know, one of the things about that I've noticed about religion, or that you know, in the Bible and and in the Quran, is that you can take just about anything mm-hmm. and justify just about anything mm-hmm. that you want to do. We've justified slavery uh, because of the passages that are in the New Testament of slaves obey your masters, and so we justified a whole century or two centuries of of slavery just because that's written in 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 the bible and so does islam allow you to lie in a situation where it protects islam or protects you or protects your life yeah absolutely it does that you know but we have an example of that in the old testament okay but someone might come back and say yeah okay that's one situation i can see where you're protecting a life or something like that but what about rahab yeah exactly exactly right there are lots of (laughs) lots of them (laughs) there, there are there are some examples but the 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 issue that i'm raising has to do with how this then impacts the elements that are associated with terrorism and that kind of thing. Now, what ha- is there? Uh, let me ask it this way: Is there a line in Islam between the kind of um, 
uh, say a, a lie given in self-defense to protect one's interests, or is what we would sometimes call terrorism um, put under that umbrella as well? And yet, at the same time, there's a sense of well, that's stretching the category a little bit. Um, uh, I know that even within some of the debate within among Muslims about how some of the terrorism has been against other Muslims, it has been, um, and and how that has that has uh, shaken the Islamic community because it's. Although there's a defense for it at one level, there's another sense in which this is coming against another principle of Islam. So sort that out for us. Well, you know, obviously, these terrorists, you know, I'll give you an example. Osama bin Laden justified everything that he did by saying, you know, according to the Sharia law, you can't go into war unless somebody's attacking you. So you should do it in self-defense. So he says, I'm coming in in self-defense because look at the way America is supporting Israel and look at how many Palestinian kids are being killed as a result of that. So he's justifying it. And anybody, like I mentioned earlier, anybody can justify anything at any time with any Bible verse mm -hmm. or any Quranic verse. And so he'll justify that. And these terrorists will justify what they do because they think that, you know, they're doing it in self self-defense and so so is um is there no difference between the way christianity talks about love and honesty and that kind of thing and the kind of emphasis you get in islam is there no difference at all or or is there a difference in the tone and feel of the two face well, there, there's definitely a difference in the tone of the two faiths. Obviously, we are told not to lie, and we are told not to, you know, in, in the Bible. And then again, you know, we've got verses in the Old Testament where, you know, people did blatantly lie mm -hmm. in order to protect certain people or to protect themselves or to protect a nation or whatever it is. Um, so I, you know, obviously, honesty is God's heart. Mm-hmm. And the issue of not lying is definitely God's heart. Has that been used by man? Absolutely, it's been used by man. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the Quran, it's permissible mm -hmm. to lie um, in certain situations when you're in a war, when, when there's a self-defense and, and situations like that. So the Quran particularly permits, or the Sharia law permits people to lie in those types of situations. I don't know that... There is a mandate in the, in the Bible that says, yes, you can lie in a certain situation, mm -hmm. um, but I think it has been used, and I think, I, I believe it's been blessed, mm -hmm. even. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Okay. 
I'm going to shift gears entirely. And you're probably going to call me a heretic. No, 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 after no, no, this. no, no, not at all, not at all. No, I, actually, part of the point of the part of the point of our conversation here is to have people appreciate the nature of the way um, people are thinking, both within within a faith and outside of a faith. And and you know, I mean, every, I mean, even James talks about Rahab. So uh, you know, so we have these texts which Christian ethicists then uh, spent a long time sure. interacting and explaining what's going on. So no, not a problem at all. Well, let's shift gears. Let's talk about your own personal uh, walk a little bit, and let's talk about. Um, uh, let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do it this way. Um, how you saw yourself when you were growing up in the context of Islam, and I'll give you the whole. Uh, train of thought here, so you can kind of we can kind of segment it, and then uh, how you encountered the Christian faith, and uh, what struck you about it as you were still in Islam, and then how you came to faith, and then on the other side, what are you doing now? So, kind of in four parts. Um, I think when I was a Muslim, I believed that Islam was the true religion. And when I was, I believed that we all worship the same God. I believed that there was many ways to get to God. And I believed that if you were a good person, that eventually God was going to forgive you and, and send you. That was my theology. Mm-hmm. Then a friend of mine invited me to attend a church. And, you know, in, in my thought process, I thought, well, God created Islam and Judaism and Christianity, and he just wouldn't be too horribly upset if I attend a Christian church. And so when I went to church, I was curious, and I my impression of the pastor was he's a nice guy, but he's just confused and misled because he doesn't know the truth about now, Islam. did that happen here in the States, or did that... Okay, that's, this was after you had come to the States. Yeah, when I came to the States. And so when she invited me to church... I was curious, and so I began to read books. I, I I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse. Sometimes it's a blessing, sometimes it's a curse, but God has given me an inquisitive mind. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious, and so I wanted to understand why Christians believed what they believed. And so I began to read books, and I began to question, you know, read, read the Quran and read the Bible. And that's when I was confronted with the fact that both religions could not be right. Mm-hmm. One, ha- one says one thing about Jesus, and the other one says a completely different thing about him. Islam says that Jesus was never crucified, that God sent someone to look like him to be crucified, and Christians clearly believe that he was crucified and died on the cross for their sins. Yeah, that's a minor detail, isn't it? <laughs> Just a, a little bit, yeah. yeah. And, so, and the way to get to heaven, one was God came down to you, and another way is you get to God. And so I I was, all of a sudden, my curiosity became the quest for knowing the truth. I believed that there had to be one way to get to God. That's interesting because, you know, the, the uh, someone else who we're going to be interviewing on these podcasts, an uh, uh, Islamic man, had a very similar experience with his own curiosity about what he had heard about Christianity versus when he began to dig in, he realized what I'd heard said about Christianity isn't quite what I'm hearing. And so that sent him on his own quest as well. Sure. And he eventually came to the Lord in the same. It sounds like in a very similar kind of way. Yeah. And so for me, I, I didn't see any visions and dreams. A lot of Muslims see visions and dreams. Mm-hmm. And God chose to send me down a different path, which mm-hmm. is study and research and um you know, I had studied about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how the Bible had been preserved all these years, because as a Muslim, I believe that the Bible's been changed. Right. 
And so just looking at the preservation of the Bible and how, you know, it could have been very easily that the Quran was changed. And so that there was a lot of doubt in my mind about Islam. And during that time, during my research, it just made me doubt Islam more and believe in Christianity more so. And so I, I, I thought to myself, you know, one question that I had was, how could God deceive people? I, I couldn't reconcile in my mind. How could God deceive people and send a double for him mm -hmm. to be crucified? Why would he deceive people and then try to rectify the situation 600 years later? Yeah. And so I believe that Jesus did die on the cross, and uh, I was studying the book of Romans, and in chapter 5 it says, Through one man all men have fallen, and through one man all men have been saved, which is Christ. And that made sense to me that God would make a way rather than me try to climb an invisible ladder to try to reach him with my good works. So is there no role for Adam in Islam? Yeah, he was just a prophet. He was just a prophet, but there's no there's no fall or sin or any condition that comes out of it as a result or anything like that. Well, that's that's very interesting that you say that because in Islam, I had believed that you know Adam sinned and so God took him out of heaven. He had lived in heaven and he brought him to earth, and that that God had a purpose for him to come down to earth so the earth can be populated and man can do good and then get to heaven by their good works, by following Allah and praying five times a day. Whereas it met with, with Christianity, um, the whole idea of the sacrifice where God committed the first sacrifice in the Garden of Eden, and he committed the last sacrifice with his son, Jesus Christ, that just blew my mind away. Mm -hmm. So, so in, 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 if I can say it this way, in Christianity and in Judaism, you have the picture of Adam leading to the fall and putting the condition on man, whereas in Islam, it's almost like it's the latter. We, we take Adam, uh, put him on earth, and give him a chance to reclaim himself, exactly. and you do it by the latter. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing now? Uh, well, I graduated from a Bible college and from seminary. And I'm currently serving uh, to help people understand Muslims and how to reach out to Muslims. And uh, I also help with um, people who come to the United States that need help who are from who are Muslims. And um, so that's what I'm currently doing. So it's a so it's a it's a combination outreach ministry, really, both in terms of helping people get acclimated and in terms of helping them understand the Christian faith mm -hmm. and equipping the church. OK, well, let's talk about this last dimension uh, of of your current life in ministry. How, how what advice would you give to people who say, I have a Muslim neighbor or I have a mosque down the street now I didn't used to have? Um how do, what's the best way to interact with and and relate to Muslim people? I realize it's a broad question, but you, I mean, you do this as a ministry, so what would you say? You know, one thing, it has to begin with prayer. It has to begin with the Holy Spirit convicting them and opening the hearts of Muslims and opening our hearts. I think one of the things that I start with as far as equipping churches is I say, pray for yourselves. Pray for your heart if there's any misconceptions that you may have because you're equipped with the Holy Spirit. They're not. They have misconceptions of us. We have misconceptions of them. So start with prayer. Start with a lot of prayer and bathe everything that you do with prayer. 
and ask the door, ask the Lord to open doors because the most amazing thing that happens is when you ask God to open doors, you know what happens? Mm. He opens them. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it, it begins and ends with relationships. Just start a relationship. One of the things that I tell people is you build a relationship with a person and along the way you plant seeds about Christ and Christianity as the Lord opens the door for you. Okay. So, uh, and what kind? Of, you've already talked about some stereotypes that not everyone is a is a terrorist. What other stereotypes do you think we should be aware of as we think about ministering to someone who comes out of an Islamic background? Well, I, I think that's a, a really big one. I think the whole issue of women and um, women are oppressed. I've seen all these. I don't know if you have, Doctor Back, these ridiculous emails about how women are treated in the Middle East mm -hmm. and. Um, and I have to just say, it doesn't matter. What really matters is not, what I tell people is my rights in Christianity are not as important as my right in Christ. Mm -hmm. So don't look at what, what you think Islam says about women. Don't. I don't want I don't want people to focus on that. Focus on the fact that these people are lost souls and they need Jesus Christ. Okay, so would a core level of advice be um, just interact and relate to someone out of the Islamic faith like you would try to relate to anybody? Absolutely. You know, when, when Paul went to Athens, the first thing that he did was he bridged the gap. He talked about some similarities. He didn't, he didn't walk in there and say, well, you know, Allah and, and God are all much different. He mm -hmm. didn't say that to them. He said he complimented their religiosity. He said, I can, I can tell that you're men of faith or mm -hmm. that, you're, that you're very religious. And he says, you know, I've walked around, I've observed. So he studied what they believed. Mm -hmm. So give them an opportunity to talk about their faith. They're happy to talk about that. And once you give them that opportunity, that will open a door for you and afford you the opportunity to share about your faith. He says, I've walked around and says that I've noticed this unknown God. And he builds a, a bridge and he says, let me tell you about this unknown God. Let me make this unknown God known to you. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you're making in terms of both building a bridge and having uh, having a conversation where you let people talk about their faith. I often say in doing evangelism that sometimes Christians tend to want to talk too quickly and too much. Amen. And, and that basically uh, when you build that relationship, allowing someone to talk about their religious experience and how they feel about God, et cetera, is very important because it's like you're being given a window into their heart. And when you get a window into someone's heart, um, that can help you know uh, what needs they may be expressing and where they place themselves and what they value. And that may actually help you think about how to engage. And so sometimes I think, at the, particularly initially, we need to be slow to talk and quick to listen mm -hmm. so that we give people a time to tell their story. And by getting to know them, then we put ourselves in a better place to know how to minister to them. Absolutely. Well, Miriam, I want to thank you for coming in and, and helping us think through uh, Islam and various aspects of life lived in the context uh, uh, of Islam. And, uh, and I really uh, appreciate the conversation that we've had an opportunity to have, and I trust that it has been helpful uh, to those who have been uh, listening today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part 
by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.